Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. You even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional-level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Tippin, one of the hosts of the channel. For this episode, I'm joined by two students from Chatham University's MA in Food Studies program, Archish Kashakar and Lindsay Herring. We'll be talking to Marion Nessel about her new book, Let's Ask Marion, What You Need to Know About the Politics of Food, Nutrition, and Health, published September 2020 by University of California Press, written in conversation with Carrie Truman. Marian Nessel is the Paulette Goddard Professor of Nutrition, Food Studies and Public Health Emerita at New York University, and the author of books about food politics, most recently, Unsavory Truth. Welcome to the podcast. It is a pleasure and an honor to be speaking with you. Oh, thanks, Carrie. Glad to be here. Well, first of all, let's start out by just telling us a little bit about your academic and professional background. Uh, we learn in the book that you have a background in molecular biology and public health and nutrition. So how did you come to the study of, uh, of food as a field of academic study and particularly well, to that intersection of food and politics? Well, I've always loved to eat. So I've been interested in food for a long time, um, but there were only two ways of studying it when I went to college. Um, you could study agriculture, but I was a city girl. I didn't get agriculture at all. Um, or you could do dietetics. And I actually went to Berkeley as a dietetics major, uh, but I only lasted one day. Uh, it was mostly home economics classes. And we were also having to take these really serious science classes. And I thought they were more interesting and challenging. So I kind of went with science and didn't get back to it until I had gone all the way through my doctorate in molecular biology, a postdoc, um, and then I took a teaching job and was given a nutrition course to teach. And I describe it as falling in love. I, mean, I just never looked back. Um, uh, molecular and cell biology are very abstract and they're difficult to teach. You can't see them, smell them, feel them. But I thought that nutrition would be just a fantastic way to teach undergraduate biology. You could teach about the digestive system. You could teach about where nutrients come from. There were all kinds of things that I was interested in. I didn't know a lot about it. It was the time of Linus Pauling's vitamin C in the common cold. Francis Moore Lappe had just published Diet for a Small Planet which seemed revolutionary and still is. Um, and Center for Science and the Public Interest had just started in Washington, DC. And they had produced a book called Food for People, Not for Profit that I tell you could have been written yesterday. Mm. Uh, and so I used those as textbooks in my first class. And so I was into everything from science to politics, agriculture in the mix. Um, just from the beginning, right from the beginning, and I've never looked back. Um, I got interested in the political side seriously later on when, uh, in the 1990s, I was already at NYU, and I went to a meeting at the National Cancer Institute 
of smoking, anti-smoking advocates. These were physicians and scientists who were devoting their careers to trying to get people to stop smoking. And they showed slides of marketing to children. Mm -hmm. um, and I was just blown away by it. I knew that cigarette companies marketed to children. Um, I had seen Joe Camel ads, which were around at the time, but I'd never paid any attention to it. And I walked, and they were part of the landscape, and I walked out of that meeting thinking, we nutritionists should be doing this for Coca-Cola. Mm. And I started paying attention, and that's really what did it. So you came to food studies by inventing it, right? Yeah, how about that? <laughs> we invented the program we all wish we could have taken. Right? <laughs> Where did the idea for this specific book begin? Uh, what was the need you saw for a book like this? And why this book? Why now? Uh, well, I was asked to do it. <laughs> this was um, this was not only um, did I not think of doing it, but I resisted for several years. I was asked by University of California Press, which has published four of my books, um, if I would do a small, um, quick and dirty reader for the general public that they could use as a way to market my other books, as try to as sort of a gateway drug into, you know, the more, into the more serious. Uh, you know, I mean, my books are big. Um, food politics is 600 pages and has 50 pages of references. You know, it's, it's a lot to take on and most people don't read it unless they're assigned it. Um, so the, um, so I can understand that, but I also thought it would be very difficult to write a, short book, and they wanted a really small one, of, of, you know, essays summarizing my ideas, and I don't like writing like that. I had written for about five years, I wrote a column for the San Francisco Chronicle food section uh, called Food Matters, and it started out every three weeks, then it was monthly, and I kept trying to get out of it, and they wouldn't let me. Um, I found them really hard to write. Um, very, very difficult to write 800 words and say something profound about some food issue. Some people can do it really well. I'm not a journalist. You know, I write really long, detailed, heavily referenced diatribes about one thing or another. Um, so it was, it was difficult. And then, uh, so I said no. And then, you know, they came back with another idea. I actually wrote a proposal for a collection of my articles over 30 or 40 years, um, short ones. And they said they wanted those articles to demonstrate the trajectory of my thinking over that period. But I went back and looked at those original articles. I could have written them yesterday. Uh, my thinking hasn't trajected. You know, I had these ideas right from the beginning. Um, so we kept batting it around. And after about three years, they kept pushing. And then I remembered Carrie Truman, who was a friend. And about 10 years ago, uh, she was writing a blog called Eating Liberally. And every now and then she would shoot me a question and then post my response on her website. And I posted them on my website. Um, and these were, her questions were clever. They were mini essays. They were a couple of hundred words long. She's extremely well informed about food issues and quite witty um, and a lot of fun. Um, and I had no trouble at all answering her questions. She would send them. Half hour later, I would send her back a response. It was just a really quick and easy kind of thing to do. So I suggested that. The University of California Press, they said, okay, Carrie agreed to do it, and we were off and running. So that's really how that happened. We figured out which questions, you know, what, which areas we needed to talk about based on the kinds of things that were asked all the time. Um, and that was how it got done. And it ended up with 18 questions. Um, her questions are 150, 200 words. My answers are 800 to 1,000 words. It's short. 
really short. Um, and then I wrote very cute. I don't it's know, adorable, isn't it? It is a very adorable book. Yeah, it's adorable. Um, and then I wrote an introduction um, to it, and I and a final sort of concluding chapter that's about advocacy. You wrote it really well. I think it was very approachable Thank to you. the general public. So I enjoyed That's it. That's what it was supposed to do. <laughs> so as Carrie said, the book is quite the adorable little pocket-sized volume, uh, different in tone and style from your other more academic books like you were talking about. Um, who are you thinking of as your ideal audience for the book? And what were you hoping the readers would do with it? <laughs> give it to each other for Christmas. Um, first of all, um, I, I taught a course in food politics and the coronavirus this fall at NYU, and I used the book as a text. It was for undergraduates. It was a pass-fail course. They weren't going to be writing big-term papers. Um, and so I thought this book would sort of cover a lot of the issues that I was covering the class and some that I wasn't covering. Students said they liked it. So these are you know, freshmen from all over the world and it was a, a kind of a strange teaching experience, but never mind. The, uh, uh, the, uh, so I don't know, I hope it's for a general audience and introducing people to the idea of food systems, introducing people to the idea of ultra processed foods, which I think is really important these days and some other things that I wish people knew more about. Um, some more obscure, like the Sustainable Development Goals, which I don't, I, as far as I can tell, nobody in America knows anything about them, but they're considered very important internationally. And so I got to talk about some things that I thought were important, as well as the kinds of questions that people ask all the time. Yeah, what's, uh, can you say a little bit more about what it's like to, to rewrite some of the themes of your existing work for a new audience? So these are all ideas, as you said, you've had for a long time. Uh, and it sounded like it was a challenge to kind of get them uh, for this other audience until you had the magic of the prompt. Uh, so what were some things that you did to, to kind of rewrite for that audience? Um, I think this may make you laugh, but I think I write for a general audience. Mm -hmm. Generally, I work very hard to try to make my writing as clear and jargon free as possible. Um, I want people to be able to understand what I think. I work very, very hard on that. I have people read the things I write before I publish them. Um, so it didn't feel like a different style. Yeah. Um, you know, and in the same way that my talks are all the same, who, you know, whoever I'm talking to, um, I'm not talking down to anybody. I don't shift the, the language. I may talk about different things. Um, in different ways, but um, I think that I, you know, I, I have tried to write for um, an educated, but an educated audience that might not know anything or have thought about the particular topics I'm writing about. Um, you know, I, I was kind of shocked with food politics when I ran a couple of paragraphs through one of those language checkers that tells you what grade level you're writing at. Graduate level is what they told me, but uh, what can I say? I tried. <laughs> this would probably be graduate level also. Yeah. For readers who are familiar with the rest of your body of work, uh, is there anything in the, the book that's new or maybe revised from those earlier texts? Well, this is the first time I've ever written about the sustainable development goals. Mm -hmm. uh, the, um, so that was brand new uh, and fresh. The, um, you know, I, I think nutrition advising has changed a great deal in the last few years where the, um, the concept of ultra-processed is revolutionary uh, because it divides foods into four categories, one of which is ultra-processed, and that's the one you have to avoid. Everything else is okay. Uh, you know, just don't overeat. But this is the category that makes you overeat. And we have really firm scientific evidence from a controlled clinical trial that people who eat a lot of ultra processed foods consume 500 calories a day more than people who are eating just regular processed foods. Um, and this simplifies 
nutrition advising. You don't have to talk about salt, sugar, and fat. You don't have to talk about nutrients. Um, you don't have to worry about calcium, zinc, da -da 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 -da. you don't have to do any of that. You just have to eat real food. Um, and so this seems like a revolutionary concept to me. The other revolutionary concept that I wrote about in this were these Lancet reports that came out in 2019. Um, the Eat Lancet report, which is sort of a, these were enormous 50 page reports, very hard to read, dense, hard to read, committee reports. But I think very important, one of them because it was meant to be a consensus report on what kind of diets are better for uh, human health and planetary health, linking food, agriculture, and a, a very food systems approach. So, so I think food systems is new and a new way of doing things. So I wanted to talk about that. Um, and then the other Lancet report, which had a terrible name, the Global Syndemic Report, um, it was very important in talking about why it's so difficult to make changes in food systems and what has to be done to make changes and defining what I thought were really useful concepts like the barriers to changing food systems are weak governance, government that's sold out to corporations, weak civil society, civil society that's not putting demands on government and a very strong food industry that resists everything having to do with public health. Um, this just was seen so clear and, um, and such a clear way of explaining what your agenda had to be that I wanted to talk about those things. So the, uh, I looked at it as an opportunity to talk about where I think we are now in nutrition advising, which is quite different than when I started out, even though I don't think my ideas have changed much. I was the editor of the Surgeon General's Report on Nutrition and Health in, in 1988, which is the one of the big reports that talked about how fat was the most important thing in the diet. Um, I didn't agree with that then, and I still don't agree with it. Um, but the, um, you know, I'd rather, but I think ultra process solves that problem. Yeah, you just spoke about um, ultra-processed foods and weak civil society. Um, one topic that comes up a few times in the book is the idea that the marketing and advertising of food affects our food choices in ways that are sometimes hard to see. Uh, you wrote, uh, when marketing is done well, it's invisible. And just a few days ago, the UK made moves to ban junk food marketing. Do you believe that advertising from large food companies and the spending of advertising should be banned in the U.S.? How much personal responsibility do we have for our own food choices and um, what actions do we need to get us to that goal of making the healthy choice the easy choice? Yeah, I actually think that marketing to children is unethical. And I mean marketing of anything, um, anything at all. Children should not be marketed to, uh, I think it raises all kinds of ethical issues. And because most food marketing aimed at children is for junk food, ultra process, we can call it now, um, you know, it's an especially difficult problem. And the marketing, people don't recognize marketing. They're not supposed to recognize marketing. It's supposed to slip below the radar of critical thinking. That was the big revelation for me at that cancer meeting, the cigarette cancer meeting, was I had never, I knew about it, but I had never noticed it. I wasn't paying attention. And most people don't pay attention to marketing. It's there. It's part of the landscape. It's just part of what's around you. You don't look at it and think, they're trying to sell me something. Or they're trying to sell my kids something. You just don't see it. And the marketers, of course, know this because they've done all the research. Um, and it's taken a long time for other researchers, to, independent researchers, to catch up with them. So yes, I think what Great Britain is doing is amazing. I'm, I don't know if they're gonna get away with it, but we'll find out. It was a proposal. We'll see whether they get away with it. Um, but certainly there have been studies that show that children who are raised in environments where there is not marketing of junk food, there's a Canadian study, for example, that was done in Quebec, um, 
don't eat as much junk food. They don't ask their parents for it. Oh, what a surprise. The food industry would not put billions and billions of dollars a year into marketing foods to kids if they didn't think it worked. And in fact, I've been at meetings where I've heard marketers say, we wish we could stop marketing to children. We don't think it's a good thing. You know, we're kind of embarrassed about it. We wish we didn't have to do it, but we do. We have stockholders. You know? So as long as we have this system in which corporations are required not only to make a profit, but to grow the profit, and corporations own governments, so governments can't regulate them, then we're in the situation where civil society is all that's left, and I'm all for strengthening civil society. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So another common topic in the book and also in our conversations as food study students at Chatham and, you know, in other places too, is about food access and insecurity. In question seven, you discuss the sociopolitical and economic policies regarding hunger and food insecurity. Um, I would like to know what your opinion is on the difference between food as a human right and ensured access to food. Well, the human rights approach uh, governs access, it governs everything. If you believe that food is a human right and that everyone has the right to food, then your job is to make sure that they get it, that they have it, and that an access is included in that. Um, access, affordability, palatability, and cultural sensitivity are all parts of, of, of what is involved in human right. It's not just, we're not talking about animals here where you're feeding them. Um, you're talking about everything that food does, which is a lot more than just solving the hunger problem. It's community and culture. And, you know, I mean, all those things that you're studying, I don't have to tell you that. Um, so, you know, I think it's very important. We don't have that in this country. You know, we don't have that. And in fact, we don't have any kind of um, a political norm that everyone in the country should have uh, access to a healthy, affordable, accessible, culturally appropriate diet. I mean, it's just not part of the culture here. And it's causing enormous amounts of trouble. You know, as you know, I don't know why everybody is so surprised that food insecurity is a problem right now. Uh, when you've got 30 to 50 million people who are out of work, I can't find a hard number on the number of people who don't who are unemployed, either because there are no jobs, they've been fired, they've been let go, they've given up looking. I, I mean, there's no there's no organization in the United States that I can find that counts. But the numbers must be enormous because there's still a million people a week who are applying, who are newly applying for unemployment insurance. Um, when those benefits run out, what are people supposed to do? I don't know. It kind of boggles my mind. I, why is anybody surprised that more people are going on food stamps? Um, and there are a lot of people who are having problems with food. I, I don't know. It seems sort of obvious to me. I'm not sure that answers your question. I think that does it actually, thank you. Yeah, and you know, this lack of food as a human right, I think it's related to the idea of nationalized um, national food policy. Um, and in chapter 12, you talk about the need for a national food policy agency. Um, and you'd say you'd love to be the national food policy advisor and we second that title for you. Um, <laughs> in this chapter, you describe how food, health, agriculture, um, they're all under a multitude of different agencies with often conflicting policies. Um, could you please talk more about your vision for a national food policy agency and how we might move the needle in that direction? 
uh, what departments are currently in charge of food policy and what would it take to create something like a national food policy agency? Well, those are questions with very different answers. Um, I think I listed 12 areas of food and nutrition policy. I left out a couple. My class complained that I hadn't said anything about international food aid and I hadn't said anything about emergency food aid. Two more agencies involved in this. Um, I think a rational, if we were gonna do a rational food policy, it's so easy to think of what that would be that when I was teaching a course on the farm bill, on the first day of class, I asked my class what a rational food policy would look like. And they came up with the whole thing in about a half an hour. Obviously, you have to have farms that um, provide farmers with a living. You have to have workers who are making a living. You have to, everybody involved in the food system has to be making a living. You want the food system to promote health. You want the food system to promote environmental sustainability, not add to greenhouse gas emissions any more than it has to, uh, attempt to sequester carbon. Um, you want all of this to happen in the same place. Well, in order to do that, you need to start from scratch. I mean, the fragmented system that we have now is historical. Uh, it, it's a, it happened because when a problem arose, they created an agency to deal with it, and that agency still exists. And the big ones are the Department of Agriculture and the Food and Drug Administration. And there are some interesting things about those two agencies. For one thing, they're not on the same level. Um, the Department of Agriculture is a cabinet level um, agency. The FDA is several things down in the Department of Health and Human Services. So that means they're not equivalent. Um, that makes the interaction very difficult. Um, and for another, the split between them is bizarre. So the Department of Agriculture is in charge of animals, everything having to do with animal agriculture, as if animal agriculture didn't have anything to do with fruits and vegetables. All you have to do is look at food safety to see what that problem is about. And the FDA is in charge of everything else. But be, for historical reasons, because the two agencies started in the same, both were in the part of the Department of Agriculture and the FDA later split off, the FDA gets its funding from agriculture appropriations committees. Um, and agriculture appropriations committees couldn't care less about the FDA. Uh, so the FDA gets a quarter of the funding for food safety, even though it's responsible for the safety of three quarters of the food supply. And the Department of Agriculture gets three quarters of the money for food safety, even though it's only responsible for a quarter. Um, so that's probably the most egregious example of why you need some sort of oversight that brings this whole thing together. Now, how that could happen is so um, far-fetched the, under the present political environment that it's almost ridiculous to talk about. Um, I mean, you would have to have uh, Congress, the White House, the courts, that you'd have to have everybody on board thinking that this was a good idea and agencies are very proprietary about what they're in charge of. I mean, I just can't see it possible politically, um, but it's fun to talk about. So in addition to that, um, my next question is, what do you think about the American response and res responsibility towards global food insecurities? Because you just touched upon how you left a little bit of it out. Um, in relation to food policy, what is your opinion on targeted outreach programs for food security based on racial justice versus a more comprehensive universal food security solution or a program? Oh, if you really wanted food security, you would go into countries and do everything possible to get them to be self-sufficient in food and do it their own way. You would support them in doing what they want to do, not what you want to do. Uh, but that's not how the food aid system works. Uh, food aid in the United States is designed to benefit American farmers. It's not designed to benefit those countries, although, although there, there have been some changes in that. 
Um, but what you really want is for countries to have their own food security systems, using their own foods, their own farmers, their own um, people creating employment in that area. You don't tell, go into countries and tell them what, what you think they should do. They have to decide that and you support them. Well, that would be totally altruistic. That's just not how international aid works. But that's how I would do it. That's why they haven't asked me. <laughs> <laughs> well, we wish you could run the zoo. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, since it's on everybody's mind, we wanted to ask you a little bit more about how COVID-19 and the coronavirus pandemic have affected food systems. This is something that you uh, addressed briefly in the introduction. Um, we hear a lot of talk about restaurants and grocery stores and third-party meal delivery services. But we wanted to talk more about how it's affecting folks who may already have low access to food. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think that some of the choices that we've made before the pandemic, like privatization of food banks and pantries, um, has affected those who were hungry during COVID? Do you think these private sources of emergency food are a good resource to fall back on, despite these programs not faring well long term? Well, let me start with that one. I'm a great fan of Janet Poppendieck's work. And I don't know if you're familiar with her book, Sweet Charity. If you're not, it's absolutely required reading if you're going to be talking about food banks. Um, I mean, I'm philosophically opposed to the food banking system. I think it serves a need. I wish it didn't, but I worry because so many of our students uh, are involved in the food banking system. It's the kind of thing that makes everybody feel really good. Uh, people love working with it. You get to feed the poor. It's immediate. It immediately helps people who are in great need. Um, but I think it distracts. It has created a, a completely parallel universe of food um, that distracts the attention of all of these people who are involved in this from demanding what they really ought to demand, which is policies that give people enough money to buy their own food and make their own choices. And I think that's why I was so, I'm so hard on the Farmers to Families food box program, um, which I just think is a disgrace. The, um, the program was, uh, you know, the program grew out of Sonny Perdue's, who's he's the Secretary of Agriculture, and thank heavens, only two more months, um, hopefully. The, uh, the, uh, it grew out of Sonny Perdue's announcement in 2018 that he really thought food boxes ought to replace food stamps that food boxes would do two things. They would take American produce from American farmers and they would give it to the poor and that would be a win-win situation. And you know, it was met with, the idea was met with appalled reactions. Articles in the papers about how this was a boondoggle, this was gonna go, this was gonna support big agriculture and do nothing for small farmers. Um, it wasn't going to give poor people any choice of what they ate. The, the logistic problems were formidable. It would be very expensive. And it would be people would be much better off getting more money on SNAP um, and making SNAP easier for people to have access to. And a lot of other things that you could do with SNAP that would make it a better program. Um, and so, but he, he never let it go. And every few months he would raise the subject again and raise the subject again. And then two years later, the coronavirus gave him just the excuse he needed. And they put, I think we're up to $5 billion now uh, or five and a half um, that have been put into this Farmers to Families program in which distributors go to farms, pick up the food, box it, and give the boxes to food banks who then have to deal with the boxes and distribute them. So this was a system that was completely dependent on food banks. The food banks, some handled it better than others. A lot of them had a lot of trouble with it. And many of them were distressed because there was a letter from uh, Donald Trump in each one of them before the election. Um, and some food banks pulled those letters out. The, um, the food that was in the boxes was of variable quality. I had a lot of, a lot of people sent me photographs 
of them and some looked fine, some didn't. There were dairy boxes, meat boxes and vegetable boxes. Um, and they looked okay. Uh, you know, I mean, they weren't what you asked for. You got what you got. And if it was what you liked, great. If it wasn't, too bad. Um, the food banks complained that they didn't have any place to store these things, that they had to have, they had to go and pick them up from warehouses and they didn't have uh, trucks and stuff to do that. And then um, various people have done estimations of the cost and they cost three, three times as much as what the stuff that was in them would actually cost if somebody went to a grocery store and bought it. Um, so it's a ridiculous program. I mean, it just makes no sense at all, but it's what the Department of Agriculture wanted. And I think, you know, I, since I get to invent the system I want, I think we should have a universal basic income. We could afford it. Let people buy the foods they want and then you don't have a problem with it. Go to a grocery store, buy what you want. Um, feed your family. That's what everybody wants to do anyway. Um, but to me, that's the simplest, um, most economical answer to, the, to that particular problem. And I feel the same way about school meals, universal school meals. Let's just feed, Janet Papandik has another book on that. Um, also worth reading. Uh, you know, everybody in, if kids ever got to go to school again, um, feed them. The... Um, so, you know, I think these kinds of things sound crazy, but if you don't talk about them, then if the opportunity arises, you can't move with them. And I think of, of for inspiration, of Alice Waters' garden program, uh, the Edible Schoolyard. When Alice Waters first started talking about how every school should have a garden, people thought she was crazy, absolutely out of her mind, idealistic, ridiculous, silly, how could they possibly do that? Logistically impossible, schools don't meet in the summer, that's when food is harvested, <laughs> you know, I mean, all that kind of thing. I think there's 7,000 schools that have gardens now. That's not, you know, all of them, and there's what, 100,000 schools in the United States. No, it's not all, but it's aspirational. And I've been to a lot of these programs, they're fabulous, they're wonderful. The kids grow the food, harvest the food, prepare the food, eat the food, like the food, fight, fight for salads. I don't know. It's, amazing. it's a beautiful thing to watch. So I think you talk about things that are aspirational. And the, um, I was very impressed by an article in the American Journal of Public Health last year, or maybe this year, um, that was about are un, you know, why unrealistic goals in public health are worth talking about and fighting for. Um, and the writer who wasn't talking about food issues particularly said, it's, you, you gotta be ready. You have to know what you're working toward. You have to have a very clear agenda for the advocacy that you're doing and Sometimes the goals turn out not to be unrealistic and you get them. So I'm always very impressed by that. So another interesting link to COVID might be found in your question 16, where you talk about the technology in the world of agriculture. Um, could you discuss your opinions on the correlation between better technologies and equipment to the probable loss of human labor, particularly how this drive would impact um, indigenous and minorities communities like farming practices and their efforts to gain agriculture independence from quote unquote big agro. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's no question that technology will change the labor market. There's no question about it. Um, you know, just like the weaving machines change the, you know, change the labor market in, um, in the industrial age in Great Britain, it's going to happen here too. It's already happening. Um, so the solution to that is education, it seems to me. Uh, let's do something about our school system so that everybody has an opportunity to get an education and learn how to 
do jobs that are going to be in the new economy. These things are totally tied to education, healthcare, housing, and all of the other policies uh, right now that are using low-wage human workers, workers as if they're meaningless and have no human dignity. I mean, that needs to change. Uh, and if we don't work to change that, then human misery is going to be a lot more than it is now. Um, so I'm not saying that we shouldn't have technology much as I dislike it. Um, I think it's coming and it's not going to, I mean, the, we're not going to be tearing it down and making it not happen. It's going to happen. The question is, what do you do with masses of people who are doing this kind of work, which, by the way, most um, Americans won't do. Those jobs are available because, you know, because American young people won't do it. I am. When my partner was, um, and hey, my partner grew up on a farm, and all of the kids worked on farms over the summer. Everybody did. They all did. That's how they paid for their college education, was they worked on farms. Um, but that was before college education became as expensive as it is now. So we have plenty to change in this society. And I think that food is a very good entry point into talking about, to people about these changes. Um, so I'm greatly in favor of food programs like the one that you're in um, that link agriculture to public health um, and that make it clear. I mean, it's just, you can talk to people about food issues, they get it right away. And um, also a small follow-up to that, um, maybe, technology and food is a positive answer to the environmental and farming issues that we're facing during COVID. Um, how do you feel about that? I, you got to tell me more about that. What do you um, think? So, um, basically how, you know, I previously talked about loss of labor, but in transition or in contrast to that, we could talk about how technology or superior farming practices can, you know, with less human influence could actually increase uh, the farming. I during the COVID and when we can't physically be there. Yeah, I fall into the regenerative agriculture category. Um, I'm for less technology in farming and much more attention to how do you do it in a way that replaces the nutrients that are being taken out of the soil, retains the nutrients, sequesters carbon, uh, this all goes under the heading of what they're now calling regenerative agriculture. And I think the arguments for it are powerful. Um, and that means smaller scale. It means producing less food, not more. It means producing a lot less meat because you got to feed all those animals. It means producing food for people, not for animals and not, absolutely not for ethanol for cars. Uh, you know, 40% of, I mean, this is a figure that just absolutely throws me. 40% of United States corn is used to produce ethanol? Are you kidding me? That makes no sense at all. Not to me, it doesn't make any sense. So how about producing food for people? And how about doing it in a smaller scale? I mean, the other part of that is that go into the Midwest. I mean, that's, you want to understand the politics of the Midwest. All you have to do is go there and look at how everything's boarded up. There are no people there. The farms are all run by machines. Doesn't take any people to run them. The labor comes in and goes out. Um, you know, you want community, you've got to have small farms. Um, this may sound you know, crazy, but I, I think there's the evidence on the power of regenerative agriculture seems to me to be very powerful. I'm really impressed by the arguments, by the data that are, that's coming out by, um, and there's an enormous effort now, particularly because of climate change, to try to demonstrate how smaller scale agricultural practices would work much better. Okay, so moving in a kind of different direction, um, you write a lot about you know, the need and trying to eat healthily but we wondered if you have a favorite comfort food that you turn to during the time of COVID. Um, 
I follow my own advice about eating, um, which is, you know, I'm a, I think Michael Pollan has said it better than anybody else. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. I like ice cream. That helps. <laughs> in moderation, of course. Everything in moderation. Everything in moderation. <laughs> if you can do moderation, and I'm somebody who can. Mm. I, I absolutely recognize that not everybody can do it, but I can. <laughs> cool. Well, that's one of the themes that I have always appreciated most in your book, this book and in your writing elsewhere is just to remember that with all of the complications with the food system, food is also delicious and a source of pleasure. Um, so perhaps a way to kind of wind down our conversation. What do you think it means to have a loving relationship with food? I really loved that phrase that you used as opposed to addiction right? There's an addiction to food, but then there's this loving relationship. What does that look like? And, and what part should pleasure play in how we decide what to eat? This part, an enormous part. Food is something that can give you pleasure every single time you eat. Um, you know, at least three times a day, more if you're a typical American. Um, you know, it's one of life's greatest pleasures and not to love it to be afraid of it, to fight it, um, to fear it. Uh, it just makes me so sad. Um, you know, one of the great things about food studies is that everybody who comes into it pretty much loves it in contrast to nutrition in which a lot of people go into nutrition because they're afraid of food and they're worried about what not to eat. Um, I think you can eat anything. I would never tell anybody they couldn't eat something. Just don't eat too much of it. You know, if you think it's not good for you, don't eat too much of it. I mean, I just got a call from a reporter this afternoon um, who's, who wants to write an article about guilt over Thanksgiving. I think, really? Really? This year? Please, not this year. Not this year. When everybody's having so much trouble with Thanksgiving this year. Um, let people have a break. Cut everybody some slack. You know, if people overeat on Thanksgiving, it's okay. That's what it's about. Um, I, I mean, it's just, you have to be able to enjoy it and enjoy it without punishing yourself too much. I don't know how to create that attitude in people who don't have it, um, who've grown up, you know, thinking you can't eat this, you can't eat that, you mustn't eat this. You eat that? You know, I mean, I, I used to have to say all the time, um, let's make a deal. You promise me that you will never come up to me and say, you eat that. And I promise I will never say a word about what you eat. Let's make a deal. Um, because, you know, I'm in, and I'm, people come up to me all the time and say they can't believe what I'm eating. You have ice cream for dessert? Really? Yes, I do, and I enjoy it. So, um, but I'm able not to eat too much of it, and I know that not everybody can do that. Well, what projects are you working on next? Well, as I said, I'm writing a memoir. So I have another contract with the University of California Press, um, and it'll be a work memoir to answer the question that you already asked. How did you happen to do this? So answering your questions, exactly those questions. Um, you know, what, what prompted you to do it? What, you know, I don't know. For me, the big issue is what took me so long. Um, so that's something that I'll talk about in the book. But um, the, um, it's been interesting to write. It's, it's another example of a kind of writing I don't usually do. And one of the things that I'm tied up in is how much fact-checking do I have to do? Uh, a memoir is very different from a, from a biography. I've read a lot about memoirs and it has been pounded into me that this is not a biography. Um, so it doesn't have to be factually correct, but I'm very uncomfortable not being factually correct. Very uncomfortable. Um, so I'm trying to fact check and it's, um, it's not very easy to do that. And I've just spent the last week trying to track down a reference that from the first class I taught in nutrition, 
Um, and it was, it was a very important reference for me because it really was something that made me think that nutrition would be fabulous to teach. And it was a study that was done in the 1940s. And I had read about it in the recommended dietary allowance book. And I couldn't find the reference. I just couldn't find it. And it was a study about um, that had been done on a, a vitamin deficiency in women who were locked up in a mental institution. And the particular vitamin that was being studied was thymine, which symptoms of its deficiency or mental problems. I couldn't believe that they were doing a study of thymine deficiency on women who were locked up in a mental institution. It was before informed consent, but still, uh, you know, it just made no sense to me. I couldn't find this reference. And finally, my partner, who's a nutrition researcher, uh, found it for me by looking for it in a different way, quite clever actually. And the title of the study was Thymine Deficiency in Men. It just never occurred to me. It just never occurred to me to look at that one. Um, so I'm trying to fact check and I'm having, a, I'm having a pretty entertaining time. with. I'm having more fun with the fact checking than I, than I am writing this, the stories that I'm writing. Well, when it's ready, make sure that we get to talk to you again for the podcast. Well, in 2022. All right. <laughs> well, uh, this evening we've been talking with Marion Nessel about her new book, Let's Ask Marion What You Need to Know About the Politics of Food, Nutrition, and Health. Thank you so much for giving us your time. We really appreciated the conversation. Oh, glad to be here and have fun with your program. You're so lucky to be in it. Thank you for Thank listening. Thank you so much.